Greetings, listeners. My name is Jason Catrone, the dungeon master of this, the Undersiders podcast. As we head forth into the meat and potatoes of the campaign, I figured it would be best to provide you all with a little bit of an appetizer course concerning the setting of Gaia Primus and her relevant histories. I understand that some information has already been elaborated upon on the actual Undersiders website, which, if you haven't checked out, really, honestly, do. It's fantastic, and I'm, I'm so proud of of the work that's been put into that, and I'm especially proud of the writing for no particular reason. But I wanted to offer up this supplemental session to sort of congregate all of that information surrounding the world and its disparate parts in a more digestible manner. As this goes on, I hope that you come from this experience divining something new about the world. And so, without further ado, I guess. As this passage is meant to provide the reader with a general sense of Gaia Primus, or Gaia as it is referred to herein, I find it easiest to begin with geological and celestial fact. The planet is the fourth of several present within our solar system, the exact number of which is unknown to even our most venerated astronomers. We maintain a heliocentric orbit around Sol, hypothesized to be either the forge used to mold the universe or a giant ball of eternal fire, whilst two moons, Arcturus and Atlas, so named after the popular myth to be elaborated upon within this volume, revolve around our own planet, occasionally in tandem. Though the lands to the east have yet to be explored, and exist on our current map merely as a formality to appease the more adventurous minds present within the assembly of cartographers, it can be surmised that the bulk of Paramount Historia takes place on the six principal continents, Amory, Cerebialis, Ostenheim, Tolua, and Lostris, divided into north and south. Each can be said to deserve volumes of literature dedicated to their histories, but as this is, again, an introductory message to a traveler's guide, suffice it to say, I've no interest in expounding so thoroughly here. A brief summary of each will do for the time being. Amory is the birthplace of the civilized world. This is barely an exaggeration. Nearly all historical record points to Amory being the first continent to house the original tribes of humanity and their species-adjacent cousins. Orc, dwarf, elf, tiefling, dragonborn, etc. Additionally, there exist numerous sites of archaeological and religious significance which reinforce this claim, each defended fiercely by members of the Amorian League. Think of them as a, a loose collection of ancient city-states. Cerebialis is a frigid place located below the western portion of the Shimmering Peaks. The continent's current governing body bears many hallmarks familiar to those who are dedicated to the study of history. Led by their authoritarian emperor, Antonin Vitomir Sekvid, the citizens of Cerebialis face famine, hardship, and governmental lunacy with a tenacity not unlike their neighboring Ostenheimers. Many institutions of magic, sponsored by the various assemblies, which corral the desires of individuals into a more unified front, 
are based across the Empire, supplying Cerub Ulistrasis, the Empire's capital, located within the heart of Mount Restless Rasputania, with a steady supply of failed sorcerers to employ when the Crystal Guard needs prospective initiates. Ostenheim, in contrast to its neighbors, occupies the lowlands beneath the eastern portion of the Shimmering Peaks. An aristocratic caste known as the Herdlicious Tag controls the numerous provinces scattered throughout this plentiful land. Their current king, Marcus Sieghart, more colloquially referred to as Marcus the Jeweled, has maintained the legacy of prosperity started by his predecessor, Sovereign Aurelian Ottokar, though their respective titles betray the stability of that high station. The election of the royal officiate, as they are legally classified, must be unanimously accepted by the sixty-some-odd member families of the Heldlicious Tag, and such an event only occurs upon the death of the officiate. A brief note before we travel to the final two continents. Ostenheim is no doubt recognizable to you, dear reader, in that one of its towns serves as the base of operations for the so-called... <laughs> Assembly of Heroes, a guild specifically meant to exercise the ideals and traditions exemplified by certain members of the heroic age. Whether or not they succeed in this endeavor is a matter best left to thorough documentation and future generations. Penultimately, Tolua is an oddity amongst the continents, and I say that in no disparaging way. A collection of islands separated by the mesmerizing waves of brilliance, my homeland has most recently fallen under the control of a consortium that follows an executive form of governance the likes of which is wholly unique. It is completely divorced from the notions of caste or royal title. Any person possessing the spirit of public service within them can seek to serve as a consort to their state. And while the specifics of our politics shall be elaborated upon further, at some point in this endeavor, suffice it to say that it has given our nation of outcasts a unique identity, the likes of which has yet to be replicated. My publicist will surely accuse me of embellishing this particular summation to engorge my own sense of bravado in relation to my home. But what can be said? The author's pen only writes what the author observes. And in Tolua, I find no greater nation. Finally, Lostris as a whole can be considered new land, discovered only within the past century. Already it has become a testing grounds for the patience of empires, the will of aristocrats, the resources of leagues, and the ingenuity of consorts. Its resources are plentiful, its governing bodies virtually non-existent, outside of disparate tribal groups and rogue nations, and its soul ripe for the taking. And while I have yet to lay eyes upon it, I scarcely wish to visit such a maddening place any time soon. An excerpt from the introduction to Diatribes in Drivel, the definitive manual to Gaia Primus, by High Magus Xavier Hyacinth of Yotolua. Each of the six continents carries its own histories, its own myths, its own cultures and whatnot. Obviously, for a supplemental session, I'm not going to reveal all secrets, but I did want to provide a little bit more insight into each of them individually than sort of the excerpts that were available on the website. Beginning with Amory, the first nation, as it were, they can be considered fairly conservative and isolationist in their culture and society. They are also considered to be the most 
pious nation, solely due to the number of holy sites found within the continent, most of the natives of the Amorian League don't actually care to exercise or even acknowledge the uh, significance of these relics and sites. In fact, the governments of Amory, specifically the city-states located within, are more concerned with preserving the Amorian identity. They are very much concerned with the strength of their neighbors than they are with outside influences. However, that being said, most city-states that are north of the Swathe, which is basically a, a large desert that cuts across the northern portion of the continent, are allied with either Ostenheim or Cerebialis, or both, of course. And there are some eastern and southeastern powers who have had their hands in Lostrician politics as that continent, newly discovered, comes to the forefront, using the region's comparative instability to bolster their economic standing, these city-states are gaining in influence, but still separated from a majority of the world simply due to distance and the hazards of the swathe. The Western Amorian city-states acted as the progenitors for the nation of Tolua. With that being mentioned, I suppose it would be prudent to now move to Tolua, as mentioned in the sort of diatribes and drivel thing, this is basically an island nation of outcasts. They are a conglomerate that operates upon a Republican representative system. Allegedly, there's bits of meritocracy that could be hopefully peppered throughout local government, but as this is sort of a democratically elected system, the validity of such claims is very much subject to scrutiny. Sailors, merchants, and traders mostly operate within the uh, consortium, with, of course, the blessing of the consorts. Tolua, it's, it's really one of the foremost global powers, but not due to sort of an active presence, more due to a general indifference towards international affairs. It kind of takes after the philosophy of walk softly but carry a big stick. That that kind of inner power that allows them to act out in certain ways, what with piracy being a, a bit of a problem along the waves of brilliance, and not suffer any great consequences for it. Interestingly, each state of Tolua, 37 in all, has adopted the continent's surname preceded by its state capital, in a sign of mutual unification and allegiance to the consortia. Representatives from each state come to the capital of Kurdes during their elected period. A permanent judicial union handles legal affairs, and appointments for any position within this judiciary are for life, be they defenders, prosecutors, judges, or any other legal functionary. The whole continent operates on a system that is wholly unknown to Ostenheim and Cerebialis. They are very much still in the business of kings and clans, although the meaning of these titles has shifted a little bit, what with Ostenheim specifically. Where it has not shifted, however, is Cerebialis. It's what could be considered a strange land, though to us and students of history it is all too familiar. There is decadence amongst the royals, poverty strikes the abode of the commoner, and while there are definite signs of tension that do crop up every now and again, a revolution is far from the minds of most people due to the absolute authority and 
power of the autocratic Sekvid line. The current emperor Antonin Vitomir Sekvid rules with a very stern demeanor and uh, dictates not only to his citizenry but to his neighbors to the east very strongly and exudes a character of absolute control. Again, the validity of which can be put into question by skeptics and outsiders. A quick note, actually, about Cerebialis. Magic is most strongly practiced and revered within this continent. Many educational institutions, mostly controlled by the various magical assemblies, are based across this continent, and it is with the express intent of studying or empowering various magical domains. That being said, that doesn't mean that magic users are destined to end up in Cerebialis one way or another. The assemblies themselves spiderweb across the continents, coordinating with colleagues on a pretty regular basis. I would say that they are analogous to guilds, but on a more international scale. Now, with Cerebialis sort of taken into consideration, we move to Ostenheim. This name is hopefully familiar, considering that is where our current adventuring party finds themselves. They are considered widely to be the most economically sound continent. They've entered into a recent trade pact with a number of northern Amorian city-states and Cerebialis. I swear I know the names of the Amorian city-states. I'm just not telling you because... reasons. While a class system does technically exist on a socioeconomic level, birth status does not necessarily define a citizen's ability to become upwardly mobile, but it is a bit of a hindrance, and is different in the sense that while in Tolua, its southeastern neighbor, anybody can serve, in Ostenheim, the Heldlichistag, the noble caste, has to be okay with you serving. You're not democratically elected so much as you are appointed or otherwise given responsibility. It's basically analogous to medieval lords handing off certain responsibilities to their serfs. Additionally, throughout Ostenheim, there are many ruins that populate its forest, which offer more than a few opportunities for adventuring parties to find fortune and glory in the history of Ostenheim. There's indeed one that comes to mind known as Reedwall that might be of uh, pertinent importance to certain characters within our story. I think that's everything. Oh, no, it's not everything covered because still we have North and South Lostris. Culturally, Lostris as a whole is sort of populated by various junta groups vying for control with secrets sort of abounding in every corner. While freedom does exist, its breadth and width kind of vary with the ruling parties that uh, populate the myriad of provinces that span the entire continent. You've got libertarian militants who have these democratic philosopher ideologues, merchant barons, royal appointees, these sort of conquistador-esque characters. Basically, you've got a lot of power brokers kind of vying for control. It's very much a proving ground for the nations of the world to sort of lay claim and, well, as the name proving ground would imply, prove their worth, not only as an entity unto themselves, but as an entity unto those they govern. Aside from that, the seas and the wilds of Gaia teem with all manner of monsters. In truth, the only environments that have yet to be fully explored are the two virtually uninhabited polar ice caps and the Swathe, which I had mentioned before. Again, a large sweeping sect of pristine desert that stretches across the north or center north of Amory and a very, very minuscule portion of southwest Cerebialis. 
it dawns on me that perhaps it should be worth your time and worth the effort to discuss the timeline of Gaia. The timeline of Gaia Primus basically breaks down into four main ages. Uh, the Ages Unrecorded, the Hero's Age, the Philosopher's Age, and the Magician's Age. The Ages Unrecorded, in context, this would be like prehistoric Earth. This is the time when gods such as like Heronius, Pelor, Erathus, the Raven Queen, Nerul, etc., etc., incarnate and roaming the world, free from the devices and machinations of their creations, delighted in the company of each other. As time progresses, though, you have several conflicts which arise as many of the gods begin to form their own sort of civilizations, or, or at least begin to sow the seeds of what might become civilization. The catalyst of this age is marked by the killing of Nerul by the Raven Queen and her ascension into the responsibility of Arbiter of the Dead. As that occurs, the specifics of what exactly transpires are a matter of myth and legend. Only giants, dragons, and really ethereal entities of an advanced age and or lineage can really even begin to describe what these times were like. The written languages of the lesser races, meaning humans, elves, orcs, etc., did not come into being until several centuries after the departure of the corporeal forms of the gods. Indeed, even then, several gods have taken careful steps to erase their presence during these eons. You can imagine that the names of these gods have been quite hard to track, but their scars are left amongst the tapestry of Gaia. We exit from the ages unrecorded and go into the heroes' age. The exploits of Arcturus at his compatriots, they, they were in full swing, really. This is when the legendary figures of Gaia really come to the forefront and do <laughs> what needs to be done. The primitive worship of the true gods that came before was finally really documented in pictographs and ancient record, and indeed, the Ascended got their start in this age. The Ascended being gods of a sort that are popularized throughout their exploits and through the ages that come after the Hero's Age, that are worshipped as deities unique to their own domains and uh, independent of the true gods, quote-unquote. One last thing to mention about the Hero's Age. There are, scattered across this world, hypothesized to be portals or waypoints known as runways. They are central to the development of civilization. They served a purpose in the Hero's Age, but that purpose has since been lost, and archaeologists and historians notice that of the runways that civilization is aware of, one I believe is on Amory, one in Ostenheim, and one in Cerebialis, there is a definite marker of civilization there. The histories that sort of revolve around Gaia are centralized around these runways. Whatever their purpose was is uh, a mystery yet to be solved, but as we exit the Hero's Age, we go into the Philosopher's Age, where the great thinkers and leaders of ancient Gaia finally take the reins and progress society forward exponentially 
with advances in literacy, theology, the sciences, and, as the name suggests, philosophy. It is within this age that one of the central religious authorities of Gaia, known as the Hieronian Council, is first established, and the Ascended finally begin to garner recognition as gods. Though, of course, at this point they're sort of mainly confined to local areas, isolated from each other due to the lack of intercontinental interaction in this age. Also, within the Philosopher's Age, it is the age that brings about more regular interaction with monsters, like gnolls, goblins, kobolds, goliaths, giants, minotaurs, dragons, blah blah blah. And, as you can imagine, these interactions result in several wars, the greatest of which apparently causes or could have contributed to the expansion of the swathe. There's been a lot of debate amongst historians, some hypothesizing that dragons having such vested interest in Amory, for what reason, again, varies by the story, but that they scorch the land rather than lose it. You have people saying that it was a fire giant that sort of stomped around and, and caused such massive destruction. Regardless of what the specifics are, the age sort of marks the proper beginning of the recorded era, which extends from this point to present day. Since the Philosopher's Age, it's probably been around seven to eight hundred years. The calendars have sort of been unreliable in terms of specificity, but regardless, the current age is deemed the Magician's Age. The study of magic and arcana has become more organized as conventionally institutional governments begin to take root. The Sekvid line begins this organization with the merging of Celestian's faithful, Celestian being one of the true gods, and the greatest of its sorcerers and magi. The underside... It's basically the Underdark. It's basically the Underdark. But I don't want it to be the Underdark because the Underdark carries, like, some really dark stuff that I'm, I'm like, not down with at all. And plus, you know, the name Undersiders wouldn't make much sense if they didn't go to the Underside at one point. Anywho, the Underside of Mount Rasputania, which should be hopefully familiar if you've <laughs> listened to the entire account, uh, is purged by the light of the stars, as they put it, clearing the way for the drow of the Sekvids. Oh, did I not mention they were drow? Yeah, they're drow. To allow the incorporation of nearby dwarven kingdoms and provinces. After this organization, the assemblies sort of come to proper fruition and finally give their presence to the modern world. In addition to the assemblies of magic, you also have the assemblies of various trades, like the assemblies of shipwrights, the assemblies of tax collectors, and, and whatnot, who sort of fight on behalf of the practitioners of various trades and various uh, merchant-type things. <laughs> I'm very eloquent, don't you know? Who advocate on their behalf towards proper governmental entities like the Heldlicistag, like the Sekvid Empire, etc., etc. Am I missing something? Ah, yes, I am. You've probably caught a couple of instances where I've said that the adventurers are within the tail end of the frosted four months. That is because... In Gaia, there are, instead of three-month seasons, periods of four months that, not so imaginatively, are referred to as four months. Like, squished together, four months. A week is equal to seven days. There are 60 weeks within a year, with each individual month consisting, if you're good at math, you already know this, consisting of five weeks. 
So at the current point within the campaign, the party is solidly within the latter half of the four months. And these four months are sort of distinguished by celestial occurrences in addition to weather changes. Sapphire Blue Stars and the setting of Arcturus before Atlas occur simultaneously in the four winter months, hereto referred to as the frigid four month. Sapphire Blue Stars occur independently within the flourished four month, which is four months of spring and summer, and the setting of Arcturus before Atlas occurs independently in the favored four month, which is four months of autumn and harvest season. So yeah, whenever I make reference to the frigid or frosted four months, just know that that's sort of the ass end of winter for this whole campaign. If we were to use sort of earthly terms, they'd probably be setting out in late January, early February-ish. Coincidentally, around when this whole campaign started. Should I talk about the gods? Okay, so... The true gods, quote-unquote, of Gaia, the, the ones who have been there since the beginning, constitute of Hieronius, Cord, Melora, Pelor, the Raven Queen, Nerul, Asmodeus, and Erathus, as well as racial deities. However, they are mainly worshipped in the various Amorian city-states, some of the Ostenheimer provinces, and a few of the juntas within Lostris. The Ascended, again, the heroes that became deified as the ages have progressed, consist of Ausgar, the Triumvirate, which itself is Branchala, Habakkuk, and Mishakal, the betrothed, Alakbar and Atroa, and one that has been mentioned before, Aster. What she did specifically, well, maybe we'll get into it. In addition to the cast of characters that constitute the Ascended, there were three, Arcturus, Atlas, and Rasputania. As I have been recording for about 50 minutes, I'll go ahead and make this the last thing. The moons of Gaia are quite unique. Arcturus has a dark and onyx-esque surface that is dotted with craters and large, scar-like fissures that expose a more soot or ash-like surface. In addition to these various abrasions, Arcturus's core has been hollowed out via an enormous circular hole that has existed for centuries beyond all recorded accounts. Atlas is considerably smaller and smoother than its counterpart, and pale grey in surface complexion. During the flourished four months, it covers the hole in Arcturus's core, embracing him amongst sapphire stars, like they did in the heroic era. While the two moons of Gaia remain a largely unexplained celestial phenomenon, a common myth surrounding the origins of these bodies has attempted to explain their presence and appearance. Arcturus, a great and pious hero during an ancient, mostly unrecorded epoch, was the father to Atlas. Whilst traveling the fringes of our galaxies, Arcturus suffered a terrible accident which left his body broken and scarred, his heart torn from his chest. So great was his power that even with this he still drew breath. In this torment he was carried home by his traveling companion, Rasputania, a large and indomitable huntress. Arcturus was laid down, and Atlas rushed to his side, tears falling into the hole where once a heart beat. As Arcturus's strength faded and his body grew cold, Atlas pled to the gods for some salvation. One of the gods, their name lost to time, spied the two, taking pity on them 
this deity lifted Arcturus from Atlas's arms, molding the hero into the moon that he is today. They promised that, once ready, the child would be lifted up to be with the father, united once more. The response was immediate. I am ready. Place me where I belong, by my father's side. With that, the lost god molded Atlas into the bright moon that adorns the night sky, which moves in tandem with the dark Arcturus. While they are apart in the cold murk of the favored and frigid four months, it is only for Arcturus to ride ahead of Atlas, clearing for the younger a path, which leads into the father's warm embrace amongst sapphire stars in spring. An excerpt from Diatribes and Drivel, the definitive manual to Gaia, by High Magus Xavier Hyacinth of Yotolua. The world itself still holds much that needs to be discovered. Whether or not our heroes will discover it, that is the question. <laughs> I hope you have enjoyed this supplemental session, that you have walked away with at least a, a little bit of a, an idea of where and how and why all of these events are taking place. And if not, well, stick around. We still have a tale or two to tell. We thank you so much for your audience, your patience, your listenership. Please feel free to share us with your friends, your enemies, whoever you feel comfortable with. And just know that no matter what, I have been Jason, your Dungeon Master. Thank you so much for your time. And I'll see you later. Bye-bye!